element is here with Jeff Matthews. Uh, Jeff and I work together quite a bit on a, a wide array of various various curriculums, various rescue projects, uh, ranging from USAR type things all the way through Department of Defense type of curriculum. So we worked together quite a bit and figured this would be a very valuable podcast and interview for you to hear from since I learned a lot uh, quite a few years ago from them that really changed my view of NFPA 1006. Uh, Jeff sits on NFPA 1006. He is not speaking on behalf of NFPA 1006, but does sit on the committee for NFPA 1006. He also is part of the TECC subcommittee groups uh, that focus on technical rescue aspects. Jeff. Good afternoon. Get on it, man. All right. So yeah, so uh, just a little bit more about myself. I've been in the uh, fire service for uh, going on maybe 21, 22 years, started off as a volunteer. And uh, just kind of worked my way into some paying jobs. I think a lot of people can uh, relate to that kind of uh, transgression. You know, started there, got involved in technical rescue probably in the mid-90s, uh, right around when uh, the USAR system started picking up and, and rescue wasn't quite cool at that point. But uh, stuck with it through the years and uh, been fortunate enough to work with some of the uh, pretty large contractors out there uh, delivering classes to some of the FEMA teams. And then uh, that's kind of migrated towards some of the military work that, that we've kind of worked on together. So other than that, uh, light beer drinker, mountaineer, and looking forward to discussing some of this stuff. Male dancer. Every once in a while. In, <laughs> interpretive dance. Yeah. So when we look at it, I think one of the biggest things for me is when we first started working together quite a few years ago, I wasn't the, the biggest NFPA fan whatsoever. And I found that a lot of that was from just being misinformed a little bit. And we see that pretty much from one coast to another, that when we look at NFPA, we start seeing these guidelines start melding into one another when they are not yeah. meant to be melding into one another. Right. And right. I think from my personal stance, and I think a lot of people out there, is we figured 1983 was just intertwined or within the fabric of 1006. On the other hand, what I was the first question is really, 1670 is that other guideline standard out there that deals with technical rescue. And we primarily, I mean, pretty much everything we we teach is off of 1006. Can you do kind of a, right. a what is 1006 and how has it kind of evolved over the past couple of years? I know you got a new one coming out here in the next year or two. Yeah. But what was the evolution from the past two? And if you can also talk about where does that contrast from what 1670 is and where that confusion arises? Yeah, well, let's kind of start at the beginning. And, and one of the biggest issues, I think, uh, one of the biggest hurdles that NFPA has got to overcome is just the fact that the word fire is within those standards. So, you know, one of the things we discussed on the committee, especially this past year, was maybe removing some of those key words in there that talked about fire officers and firefighters and things of that nature. Because as technical rescue evolves, it's becoming more of a um, an environment where we have military and law enforcement as well as as firefighters. But then there's also a lot of mountain rescue teams out there that are not affiliated with the fire department at all. And so, you know, is that progress has been made? Uh, those teams are kind of starting to see now that NFPA really isn't this this fire type committee, uh, you know, the guys that make up the committee really come from all types of backgrounds, from end users to uh, technical writers, all the way down to certification type folks, you know, so that's kind of how it, it fits in a little bit. So 1006 is the uh, professional qualification standard. And within NFPA, there's qualification standards for all kinds of jobs related to emergency services. So from firefighter to driver operator to fire officer, there are these professional qualification standards. So with that, 10,000 or excuse me, 1,006 is really designed for an institution that wants to certify somebody to a professional qualification standard in technical rescue. 
So if you look at it, it's really for one person to take a course and pass a course and meet certain job performance requirements in order to do that. You mentioned 1670. That was kind of one of the, well, that was really the early on technical rescue standard. And, and, you know, a good way to look at that is that's really a capability statement. So instead of it being an individual, 1670 looks more at what is a team supposed to be capable of. So a team under 1670 that may meet the operations level, they may have guys that have been certified to uh, rope rescue two within that team. But, you know, just because you have one guy that's the wizard of, of rope on your on your group doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the entire group should be rated at. So within 1670, it has a lot of skill sets that you're supposed to be able to perform as a team. Uh, so that's a good way to kind of compare and contrast those two standards. You know, with, with some of the changes that, that you kind of talked about, the progressions that have been made is that 1006, 1670, there's been a lot of confusion, I think, in the industry about which one do we follow. Uh, you'll see a lot of training institutions that will say their courses meet NFPA 1670 when truly, in fact, they should say they meet 1006 because when you take a course, you take a course as an individual, right? So you're going to see some verbiage changing within 1006 so that 1670 and 1006 are more on the same page. They even uh, assigned some guys to a, a standard task force, if you will, so that so that the committees are, are communicating much better than we have in the past. Got it. One thing, and I know this at the end of this conversation, one of the last questions we're going to talk about is, is some of the future of 1006. But I think one of the relevant things on 1006 as it stands right now is it's kind of a core plus one type right. of standard, which which I think right. is pretty phenomenal. I know that in the recent 2013 guidelines that you guys did, you kind of broke it out into even more expansive rescue. Looking through it right now, and I know that starting off on chapter six, it covers rope rescue, confined space rescue, trench rescue, structural collapse rescue, vehicle rescue, surface water rescue, swift water rescue. I'm going to go through them all, buddy. Mm -hmm. Dive rescue, ice rescue, surf (laughs) rescue, wilderness rescue, mine and tunnel rescue, cave rescue, and machinery rescue. And I think in a lot of those cases, a lot of those, the way it was broken up, especially from vehicle to machinery and things like that, really aided us and a lot of the groups that we trained to where we can get these certifications, hit the job performance requirements for those because they kind of specialty them out even more, separating vehicle machine and and things like that. So as far as the core plus one, how it stands now, knowing that potentially in the future it it may change slightly, is five is, chapter five is that core where it contains a lot of very heavy on rope stuff, oddly enough, that would permeate through all the other disciplines of rescue. But kind of explain that core plus one and how that works right now. Yeah, so so right now what a lot of uh, institutions are doing is they're actually having a a core course, if you will. So that's kind of your uh, introduction to technical rescue. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of rope stuff in there, a lot of the basic mechanical advantages, basic anchorings. Uh, there's also some uh, some medical requirements in there as well as helicopter landing sites and, and things that every technical rescuer actually would use. And then once you dive into the chapters, uh, you start building upon those blocks for the very specific aspects of those disciplines. Now, you know, there's there's a, a high probability that that is all going to change on this next rewrite. One of the things that was discussed heavily was, you know, NFPA 1670, which is the uh, kind of the, again, that the training standard or that capability standard within technical rescue, it it breaks things down into awareness, operations, and technician. But then we look at the professional qualification standard 
and it's only listed as level one and level two. So the two don't jive very well. And, and, and when, in fact, the community at large, the rescue community at large, kind of has accepted this awareness operation and technician uh, verbiage more so than they have the level one and level two. So some of the changes that I think are really going to affect institutions in, in that 1006 standard is that we're, we're working on uh, an aspect where each discipline will be its own standalone chapter. And so, you know, you may have some, uh, some repeating things in there. So within rope, obviously, you're going to learn all about rope. But uh, to do confined space, you also have to know about rope. So some of that rope information is going to repeat. And, you know, it, it, as a training institution, they just have to figure out how they're going to track that type of stuff. Um, you know, the core plus one has worked pretty well. But what we what we're kind of running around is that some of the uh, you know, some of the folks, especially in water rescue is a good example, uh, you know, they may not use a lot of these rope systems that they're they're kind of making people have to go through when, you know, swimming in water is the core of that of that standard. So uh, that you know that's one of the reasons why it's kind of been looked at to see how we can make this mimic 1006 a little bit more and then just change the qualifications as needed. I got you. There, there's some other things in there too that I think is relevant with the core plus one is a lot of people will look through what are those JPRs, what are those job performance requirements that, that I've got to get taught and checked off on to be able to get that, let's say, level one confined space certification or, or that level two, whatever. When you look at those, sometimes it looks like there's not a whole bunch to that curriculum, but I, I think it's when it's taken out of context like that, it is always combined with chapter fives. JPRs, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that that's one of the confusion people look through and they're like, oh, to do confined space one, I've only got you know X, Y, and Z that I got to do. Yeah, but right, it's it's with those JPRs that are found within Chapter Five also. So it's always a, a kind of a core plus one methodology, which which I think is great because if we're doing if we got a couple weeks with with a group, then we really only have to hit that Chapter Five one time and can kind of flow very quickly through some of the other yeah, areas. Yeah, absolutely. But but you know, on on the back end of that, there's a lot of information. Uh, I mean, let's just break it down to its to its very basic piece, and that somebody has to be in charge of a technical rescue incident, right? And so the the needs of an incident commander from a rope rescue are going to be entirely different from the needs of a technical rescuer on a structural collapse scene, and that you know that's kind of some of the stuff that that core misses a little bit when um, you know when we're talking about preparing equipment and knowing how to uh, clean the equipment and maintain the equipment and things like that, you know, you kind of find yourself having to go back through a lot of that stuff anyway when you're doing some of the courses. So, you know, I think it's going to streamline things a little bit. And and I think that the verbiage is going to be a little more accepted when we get around to the operations and technician level stuff. You know, people like to be called a technician for whatever reason. Level two just doesn't sound as sexy as uh, being a rope rescue technician. Would you would you rather me start addressing you as technician Jeff Matthews or technician Matthews? Please. Okay, you Roger that. Yeah. All right. So real quick, this is this is the part that I think is is the hang up, man. And so this is this is the question I was really wanting to get to because I think a large amount of misinformation misunderstanding arises out of NFP in 1983, and when we look at it, I believe a lot of people just assume that NFP in 1983 
which is a manufacturer standard, I'm gonna let you go into this, is a manufacturer standard. It's not like it's an end user requirement. You, you know, we don't have end users necessarily sitting on 1983. It's mainly comprised of vendors who we right. buy our stuff from who make up you know, what, what their requirements are. And, but people assume that those are now the, K, the key performance parameters or the KPPs that are within these training guidelines when in reality that, that's not true. And, and even to a large extent, Interestingly enough, I don't remember whether it was 2009, 2010, when U.S. SOCOM put out the TC3 soft CASAVAC program, right. yeah. they actually put NFPA 1983 into one of their requirements, which is uh, not to bag on them for, for a really dumb move. But it, one, it handcuffs the junk out of you. But number two, NFPA 1983 doesn't want to be used in that. They, they specifically, I've talked to you know people that, that sure. are on that committee, and they're like, "No, we that is not what we are to do." And it, even if you read the document scope, I believe at one point, going back five years, it was 1.1.5. Now it's 1.1.6. It, it actually states in there that that if you're doing something outside the norm with additional hazards, including mountain rescue, cave rescue, or anything with other associated hazards, please don't right. use this guideline. Right, right. And, and you know, that, that's, this is kind of one of my soapbox topics. You know, I think NFPA's mission is, is re- really valuable. And here in the U.S., when they started NFPA 1983, there really weren't any manufacturer standards for rope rescue equipment that were held here in the U.S. Yeah, ANSI has some things. ASTM has some things. But, you know, the, the, uh, the European standard is really what all of the companies met because uh, of the climbing industry. And that's mainly where all this equipment came out of, obviously. Uh, so when NFPA got in the mix, you know, I think it just added a lot of confusion there. And, and um, you know, it, as you mentioned, it, it doesn't apply to mountain rescue, uh, uh, any, any high hazard type situation. So, you know, I would, dare I say, a soldier in the Army you know, running around with a G-rated stainless steel carabiner just doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, and part of part of the application is that the guy's got to be trained to use the equipment, right? I mean, there's a safety factor in everything. And I think sometimes end users or the end user organizations just find it easier that, you know, if we get the strongest carabiner we possibly can, then that means that, you know, rescuer X isn't going to mess this up. And it's just kind of a, a ridiculous thought process, I believe. You know, I'm always on the end that, that why don't we train the end user to be experts and then let them decide what's going to be the best equipment for the job. Now, that's not to say that some of the equipment that NFPA uh, 1983 covers, you know, isn't, isn't quality equipment, isn't, isn't uh, usable across a broad range of environments, but that's more of the technical use equipment. And, you know, for the firefighter audience out there, they're kind of hung up on this G-rated, heavy-duty, it's got to be as strong as it can kind of thing. But, you know, you pull the equipment bag out of your heavy rescue, sitting at the fire station, and it weighs 80 pounds. And that type of equipment, that weight of equipment, isn't going to carry over to every operational environment, whether it be the military, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be uh, a wilderness rescue team. So... You know, but anyway, like you said, uh, 1983 is a manufacturer standard. So really, unless you're making a carabiner and you want it to be marketed as a product under that standard, that's the only people who follow it. You know, we uh, we use a lot of product from uh, Rock Exotica. We use some product from Sterling. We use some product from ISC uh, out of Wales. 
And, you know, a lot of their items are not NFPA approved because they're not geared towards the fire service market. You know, they're geared towards a much higher end user that, again, under the hazards that they work under, really aren't obligated to purchase equipment from NFPA 1983. And a, and a caveat on that real quick is is what, what's really interesting is Rock Exotica, obviously we, we use quite a bit of their stuff because it, it's pretty badass, but yeah. uh, you know, you'll have other places that they private label for, oh, absolutely. like CMC. So you can buy the yeah. same carabiner from Rock Exotica or you can get the one from CMC. CMC actually goes through the process of having an NFPA 1983 sure. rating because that's their customers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and uh, you know, and, and it's it's not it's certainly not a gig on CMC because they've got to recoup those costs, but that's where you'll see a uh, you know a, a price difference, obviously. And a lot of people say, well, you know, it's marked fire rescue, so it's um, it is going to be more expensive. But you know, you got to you got to put that into context. Those people are paying thousands of dollars to have this stuff uh, tested and stamped and and everything else. So you know, rightfully, they're going to have to charge a little bit more for it. So. You know the 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 only other thing I'll say about 1983, I guess, is uh, is is where it really comes in is under grant funding, and a, a lot of times um, the funding that fire departments specifically get, especially from DHS, the grant may specifically say that the equipment has to be NFPA rated equipment, but really under the environment that they're working under, NFPA rated equipment, you know, you know, kind of fits the bill for that. However, we look at a law enforcement officer again. If if I'm carrying equipment and I'm I'm a law enforcement or a soldier, am I going to carry stainless steel or am I, am I going to carry aluminum? And it's and it's kind of a no brainer. And, and to kind of tie that into the uh, the Kazavac program, you know, I, I just think that that they missed the mark because uh, you know you're not always going to be able to fill that square hole with a square peg. And there's going to be times where that has got to be filled with a round peg and it's just not going to fit, you know, the, unless there are uh, Lowe's and Home Depot sitting outside of Ramadi somewhere, I just don't see where, you know, where that view is really going to work. You know, I can only imagine what the, um, with the shipping costs alone for the army to send all of that gear over there, man, when you can probably cut the weight down by three quarters, really, you know, by, uh, by getting, technical use equipment, you know, or, or not getting NFPA rated equipment at all. And, and, you know, let let me say too, that, that, you know, if you're dealing with a company like Petzl, Rock Exotica, Rescue Technology, Sterling, you know, Blue Water, any, any of those type of companies, uh, you know, you're getting quality equipment to begin with, you know, so to think that those folks aren't making equipment that's going to hold up to your demands, you're just, you've got your head in the sand because it's just not going to happen. That's a great point. And, and you brought up the fact that, you know, it'd be silly, you know, whether it's a soft Kazovac program or you're in law enforcement carrying steel stuff, 12 and a half or, you know, really even 11 millimeter is a complete overkill for a lot of those things. But yeah. if we look at law enforcement, what's really interesting is there's all these tactical repel master courses and things like this. But what's, what's fascinating is the techniques are the same. As, oh, exactly. a, as a regular firefighter going over the edge, except you know, their ropes and carabiners and, and descent devices, a lot of times they're black, which which obviously makes all the difference <laughs> oh, in yeah, the freaking world. Which you, is, can't, you can't see it. That's you, why. you can't. You're 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 like a little Yoda man, which is badass. But it, it makes no sense, which is funny because they, they turn around and get this stuff at black now and now it's tactical. 
and yet I'm using the same techniques. And what's interesting is, you know, that the whole Elling out over, over the top of the building and now I'm a tactical rappel master is unbelievable. It meets no key performance parameters of what sure. you're doing whatsoever, you know, staying yeah, close to the building, lowering your profile. So, you know, CNN cameras can't film you as the guys inside, you know, which is, you know, social media from Mumbai to the Kenyan mall yeah. is a huge deal where they're watching your response because the media is playing in real time. And now I'm creating this huge silhouette and I got, look, they're coming in off the 15th floor. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it makes no difference in there. And I think people need to understand that that they are not mandated to that equipment. You need to use what what's in the best idea. And I think before the end of this, remind me, because my Adderall is wearing off, we need to talk about authority having jurisdictions who who will actually define the equipment you can well, use. Well, who, you know, let, let's, let's kind of segue into that right now, because, um, you know, I think this is a good juncture to, to kind of point out really what 1006, the professional qualification standard is, you know, now that we've kind of talked about that equipment and the NFPA 1983 equipment isn't always going to be the best equipment for that mission profile. And frankly, like, like you said, and, and, uh, you know, if you read through the scope of what 1983 is, any of the listeners, uh, can get a hold of that on the internet, uh, you know, and they'll see, see what, what applies to it. But, you know, that's one of the things that we hit really hard in the committee, on the professional qualification standard is, is that we do not want to dictate technique to anybody on those standards. So if you read through those standards, you know, the, the, the standard may say that, uh, you have to repel. Okay. But we don't say you have to repel using a brake bar rack or repel using an eight plate or, or any of the other devices out there. It just says you have to repel. Not even, maybe not even a device, maybe just a munter yeah, hitch maybe not a carabiner, a device. right? Yeah, just sure. So, so, so that repelling could be a, a munter hitch. It could be a gree-gree. It could be whatever device it needs to be. Basically, you just need to be able to get down the rope somehow. And, you know, th this, this comes up uh, every year. Uh, we get a lot of uh, requests for things that should be added into the, into the standard. And uh, one of the things this year was using tandem systems, okay, so, or mirrored systems. So your main line... And in the, in the fire service, we always use a safety rope. Uh, so the main line and the safety rope would be rigged exactly the same way. And, you know, we get a thing in there saying, you know, why is NFPA not allowing tandem systems? Well, that's, that's someone who's not familiar with the standard because we don't allow or disallow anything. You know, it's, a, it's just a, a, a matter of the verbiage and the standard that a mirrored system has a main line and it really does have a backup line because each line serves as both of those. Right. Uh, so the standard doesn't prevent you from any specific tactic. I mean, heck, you could if they made dental floss that would support the safety factor of whoever's using it, you know, you could repel with dental floss if you wanted to. There's nothing that says you've got to use a half inch rope or a 11 millimeter rope. So, you know, that's another part that um, is real important, I guess, for the for the end user on those standards is to understand that now getting into the, the tactical environment or the military environment, uh, you know, the same thing applies. The difference is, though, is like you, you pointed out, Sean, is, is there may be a tactical difference on how you repel. Well, that's a, a JPR or a performance piece that the authority having jurisdiction has to put in there. And, and authority having jurisdiction is a real important concept to understand because basically you make your own rules, right? If, if element rescue is the authority having jurisdiction, we can decide how we're going to execute those techniques. And that's our, our decision. And, and as the authority having jurisdiction, when we train our people, that's how we're going to train them. 
So whether it be uh, U.S. SOCOM, you know, they may decide that they're going to do the Munner hitch, and instead of breaking down, they're going to break up, right? That's a decision the authority having jurisdiction can make, but it's not a decision that the standard setting organization is ever going to get involved in. And that's a great point, and, and that, I think that's the beauty of NFP 1006 is as you read those JPRs, whether it's build a single point anchor, build a multi-point anchor, repel, you know, descend a rope, ascend right. a rope, build a simple mechanical advantage, whatever that is, it does not dictate the technique or the equipment that's in there. And they leave that up to the authority having jurisdiction. I think that's where it's, it's sort of power to the people, right? No one's going to know your organic capabilities or where you respond to better than the people there. And then, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that's the beauty of it, which I, I don't think a lot of people grasp is that in the end, you know, utilizing NFPA 1006 actually puts the power back in your hands. It sets some capability standards that, that everyone should be able to do. If you're on a rope team, you should be able to build a single point anchor, a two point anchor, a three point absolutely. anchor. You should be able to ascend, descend yeah. rope, build a mechanical advantage. And that's what it dictates. And I think what it does is it puts forth a template where now as we get those new people on the team or we want to do a yearly type of research for internally, it provides us those guidelines and those critical aspects of our job. But at no time does it dictate that we have to use a, an MPD or a Petzl ID, or we must use a, a, prusik, a double prusik or this or that. So I, I think that's where, where people go, which kind of leads us into the, the next talking point that we have is when we look at NFPA 1006 and, and you and I collectively have done quite a bit of training with very diverse groups of people. So whether that is a, a fire department technical rescue team or it's a deployable USAR asset or it's a mountain rescue team in the Rockies or let's say a, a DOD special operations group or things like that, it, it's kind of amusing because we could do that same NFPA 1006 course for all those different individuals. I mean, if you put them side by side, they look really damn different. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we're following, absolutely. but we're following that same. The principles are are the same, which I think is is very unique. And as you said, you, we may deal with some with some folks that that aren't going to go above a seven point five rope, and no matter what they do, just because of the weight and because of the the footprint it leaves, as far as them having to to do an offset infill or hike in with it, and those carabiners surely are not going to be uh, in an FPA G rated system. They're going to be a much lighter weight. We're going to see various. TTPs deployed in there that meet their specific things, yet in the end, they all are meeting the exact same JPRs. Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly, man. And, um, you, you know, when you, when you look through the standard and you look at the rec requisite skills, you know, it'll use words like the ability to select a specific piece of equipment, such as a harness or uh, given a rope rescue kit. Well, that, that kit can be made up of anything. You know, it can have uh, rock exotica, micro pulleys, and a Petzl T-block, to build the mechanical advantage, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, it, I, you know, I don't know what it's going to take to get some of the other agencies on board to get them to see that, uh, you know, this really is a good template for them. Uh, but it, it really does need to happen. I mean, we, we go to a lot of places and you, you always hear, well, this is the rope rescue guru guy, you know, this is the guy and, you know, you get over there and, and the guy really is at a very basic level. And, and that's pretty frustrating, man. It really is because, uh, you know, of all the things, especially in training, I mean, we, we can't fake rope rescue training, right? We've got to do it at a tower. You're going to be at height. You're going to be on a rope. And so, therefore, it's inherently dangerous to do the training. And, you know, to me, 
sharing as much knowledge as we can with folks and giving them a very broad background. Uh, but what you kind of find is that the authority having jurisdiction has handcuffed a lot of these people, and that's why uh, they have a very closed view of what what this actually is. And, and you know, and frankly, I think we see a lot of that with um, you know with with some of the conventional military, especially because uh, you know they, they don't get a big broad view of what rope rescue is, or even vehicle rescue for that nature. You know, they may get uh, one tool to use, and they may think that the battery powered Homatro is the the only thing they can use. You know, but, you know, hell, half the vehicles out there have a high lift jack on them. So why aren't we using a high lift jack for auto extrication? And and when you show them that, you know, it's like you're the wizard of rescue, man. And it's really uh, pretty basic stuff. And I think that's a that's a good point. Diving into other things, obviously, outside of rope related. If if we're using a high lift jack and we're doing an exterior wall collapse, you know, one thing that people don't think about is they look at the high lift jack and they're like, oh, my gosh, it's only rated at X, Y or Z, depending on the the size of the high lift that you use. And that exterior wall, yeah, that thing's going 10, 15,000 pounds. In reality, you're not lifting the whole damn thing up, but they need to understand the the intricacies of what, what rescue is and, and where the system safety factors and, and things like that actually apply and where they don't. And in the end, the principles are exactly the same, right? If, if, if you were doing a collapsed structure on one side and I was doing it on the other and you were using – High pressure bags, low pressure bags, whatever you want with with an air system and a regulator and your 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 bags and your tubes and things like that and doing tandem or stacked or whatever. And I'm doing the same thing with just a high lift jack and potentially parts of the building that that have been destroyed, right? And I can find a couple things that I can use as a fulcrum or I can use as a lever. And I start doing that. My principles are the same as your principles. We're still having to crib. We're still having to stabilize. We're still having to look at, you know, with, with equal and opposite reactions. If I lift this, is it going to crush them down here and things like that? Those exactly. are all the same. It's just how we're applying that that trade is just slightly different. So we're actually meeting many of the same key performance parameters uh, that are in there. Yeah, you know, and, a, and another good comparison is, uh, you know, vehicle recovery. We we see a lot of that with uh, some of the military folks, and and you know, when you when you start equating it to a mechanical advantage, at the same mechanical advantage they build at rope rescue, the same principles apply. That pulley doesn't know that it's now connected to a vehicle instead of a person. You know, it's it's nice to finally see kind of the light bulbs go off and be like, ah, yeah, I think I got this now. One thing that, that kind of spurred off, we didn't kind of set it off as something we were going to discuss, but because we have discussed it, I would say would be some of the misinterpretation, and we see it in every discipline, right, from from the civilian side through the, the military, is a misunderstanding of the system safety factor. And I think, you know, I, I'm really glad that NFPA kind of went away from giving an actual numerical number to right. what a person is. Because at one time it was every person on the rope is 300 and people are like, okay, if, if I got a casualty, that's 300. If I got a rescuer on there, that's 300, that's 600. Then they would go back to 1983, which the NFPA never stated any of this. They'd go back to 1983, see what that rope was. And being 40 kilonewtons, they would then basically divide, you know, 9,000 by 600, come up with 15 and be like, we must have a 15 to 1 safety factor, which is ridiculous, considering <laughs> that I put a knot in the rope and it's no longer a 15 to 1. But- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's that's where all that started, actually, was NFPA 1983. And, and, and again, it's a manufacturer standard. So those numbers were originally generated because a manufacturer, in order for them to, to kind of come up with a consensus of what a minimum breaking strength should be, I mean, you, you've got to have a weight. 
involved in that, right? You've got to have an anticipated load amount in order for them to move forward with that. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, they published those numbers and that, and I mean, now we're, we're talking years ago, we're talking probably three or maybe three or four editions ago that those numbers were in there and man, we just, we just grab hold of that dogma, man, and we can't let it go. But yeah, you're, you're hundred percent correct when, um, you know, when we go to groups and one of the, one of the very first questions I, I usually ask is what is your organization's safety factor? And that way, when we're doing the training or we're, uh, you know, we're building systems and, you know, we start making these guys think about what they're doing, then we always come back to that. Are we within your operational parameter for your safety factor of your organization? And, and man, it's just, it's a hoot when everybody says 15 to one. And because what's great is it, even sometimes even, even a 10 to one, Yet we can go down and say, okay, if it because it is a system safety factor, let's see right. all the parts of your system. So yeah, maybe your rope is is up there in kilonewtons, but we can work exactly. our way down, all the way down to an eight millimeter nylon 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 uh, kermantle nylon uh, prusik and get down to like eleven kilonewtons, and you're like, hey, how does eleven fit into your ten to one man? And you're like, oh wow, yeah, man, and and you know one of the most awesome kind of examples of this that I've seen lately. I won't name any names, but. Uh, you know, an organization is calling up for equipment and I think they're using 11 millimeter rope and some prusik cord, but man, they want a, like a 40 kilonewton anchor strap, you know? And when you use that in a basket hitch, that now becomes 80 kilonewtons. So, you know, hell, you'll be able to pull the tree over with the anchor strap, but your rope's going to break well before any of that happens, you know? And, and, uh, you know, so you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head, man. It's it's a system. And w- when you're buying equipment, when you're putting equipment together, you really have to look at this system approach and how it articulates together. You, you know, it does no good to have one piece be 20 times stronger than another piece. You know, you're only as strong as the weakest link. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's it, it's funny. And the problem with that, though, is that the people making those decisions, should they be the people making those decisions? You know, and, and unfortunately, we get uh, we get folks involved that either are afraid to say they don't know, or their only exposure to this has been very you know surface level type stuff, and they don't they don't quite know what they're talking about. That's a, that's a great point, and I think you know when we look at those, you and I've discussed it a whole bunch, but you know if we if we look at safety factors as a whole or system safety factors as a whole, it's an engineering term, right? That's where it was derived out of was was engineering the engineering sure. world. And we see things like a regular elevator that you'd find at Holiday Inn or, or wherever that typically has a 10 to 1 safety factor on it because it cannot dictate or control if people pay attention to, to their requirements, you know, with, with right. load capacities and things like right. this. Knowing that there's going to be some frat house that tries to jam as many dudes in there as possible after drinking a, a ton of, you know, Pass blue ribbon, just like they did with a Volkswagen bug or a telephone booth. And it kind of gives them that safety factor. Yet we go into commercial airlines, which theoretically typically have a three to one safety factor uh, on planes flying, you know, at 30,000 feet or even the NASA shuttle with a 1.5 to one mm-hmm. safety factor. But yet the deal with those within that aviation group is they understand what's going on. You know, they're weighing your luggage. They're doing this. They understand the intricacies and they're on top of it. You know, if the plane isn't full, the suitors asked me to move over by the wing and they understand what's going on. And yet they can construct a good solid safety system within, within understanding the components. And I think that's mainly what we lack as a whole within, within that rescue community. 
Yeah, and you know when when NFPA 1983 decided to remove that information, it, in effect, that's what they were saying was, you know, okay, now we're we're relying on the end user's expertise to decide what type of equipment they're going to use and you know what safety factor they're going to apply to this. Uh, because again, it, it, we talked about authority having jurisdiction. That's whose responsibility it is to decide what a what a prevalent safety factor should be. You know, we've we've done some uh, some Highline applications using what seven and a half seven and a mil- half and eight millimeter, three, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, seven and a half millimeter uh, Kevlar rope. You, you know, when we put the load cell on there, we're well into a, a five to one, maybe a six to one safety factor. Uh, and some people would say that's relatively low, but I, you know, I kind of got news for you. If you're doing any highline activity, there's a good chance that you're operating at that safety factor anyway. It's just not everybody has the uh, the exposure to load cells and things like that. They can't visually see it. They just know there's rules of thumbs out there, and those rules of thumbs will keep me safe. And, and that's true. But uh, you know, sometimes it's just uh, one little change, one little tweak in the system is going to affect things greatly. And, uh, and that's where I would, you know, I know you share the same view is that, you know, I want to front load people with as much information as they can, because we got to know the rules to break the rules. So let's focus on what the rules are and the technique kind of just flows along with that as we, as we work that out. All right. Kind of moving towards the the end here, if you can, I know we, we kind of bounced into it a little bit, but what is some of the potential future revisions? Let's say, for NFP 1006, what, what could we be seeing? Maybe, maybe not out there as far as I, I know there's constant input from the public in there. And I know yeah. there's some internal things where you're looking to kind of fall in line with other other groups like 1670 potentially as far as verbiage goes and things like that. What What's potentially out on the on the scope there? Yeah, well, two, probably two of the main pieces is that one, the disciplines, there's some disciplines in 1670 that are not in 1006 because the cycles are not the same. I think uh, 1670, uh, they just had an update, and 1006 doesn't update again until 2017. So it'll be about the December of 2016, I believe, when that comes out. You know, so so what you're going to see is the new 1006 standard will include those new disciplines that are in 1670. So, you know, there's like helicopter search and rescue. There's uh, animal rescue or just a couple of them that I can think of off the top of my head. So those are being added to 1006. Probably the biggest change that I, that I think is going to, going to happen is that the level one and level two is going to go away. And like I said, I don't, I don't think there was a total buy-in from the community on that anyway. You know, the, the, the hurdle is going to be training institutions having to rewrite how their programs are going to look because that core plus one is, is most likely going to go away. You know, chapter five, instead of being that core chapter, that's going to be rope rescue. And, um, you know, so, so there's going to be a little bit of rewriting in there, I think from uh, some of the institutions, uh, you know, groups like ours, we're able to absorb those changes pretty easy because we don't do classes on a semester basis anyway. So when we teach a class, you pretty much get the chapter five stuff, all over again for the most part for whatever is very specific to uh, the discipline that you're learning. So, um, you know, for private institutions, I don't think it's going to affect them too much, but for the public folks that do the, uh, the, the accreditation and things like that, I, I think they're going to have some pretty significant rewriting to do, um, over the next couple of years to get this, get this up and running. I know, you know, one of the things I didn't mention is, uh, you know, we wrote, um, technical rescue or rope levels one and two is a book I wrote a few years ago. It was put out by Delmar Learning and uh, or Cengage 
purchase Del Mar at some point. Uh, but you know, we're, we're working on the second revision of that. It's going to be put out on our own, uh, our own publishing label at this point. But you know, we've had to really take a look at how we're going to lay that out. And, and we're actually removing all of the standard correlation stuff that's actually printed in the book out because this is such a, going to be such a radical year for NFPA. We can't reprint a book every time the standard numbers change. So, uh, you know, kind of what I see is the programs are pretty much going to stay the same. You know, the, the JPRs aren't going to change. It's just the filing of them. The, the organization of them is going to change. So, you know, people that have past certifications, certainly nothing to, nothing to worry about. There's not going to be, you know, any super special information that's coming out that, that um, they haven't already been through most likely. Interesting. Real quick, if we, if we can touch on, on two last things here. One is we're, we're integrating some stuff into the tactical emergency casualty care curriculum out there, which is uh, a lot of people as far as DHS and FEMA and things like that are, are really focusing on TECC and IFF and, and yeah. a lot of other groups into that rescue task force type of methodology. You and I have done a lot of work. You uh, mm-hmm. Without naming things, you you work for a large metropolitan uh, department that's that's initiating some rescue task force type things, and and there's a lot of places throughout the United States that that are currently doing that. And one of the things that you and I've worked on quite a bit is being able to do the evac out of the casualty collection points a little yeah. bit more streamlined, less assets as far as hey, let's take that window out and let's just start getting our casualties out of here. Right. on a vertical system because I can do it about a hundred times faster than people coming yeah. in and carrying people down stairwells, et cetera. And we look at those, those vertical capabilities. And I believe, you know, when you and I've looked at that, a lot of those NFPA 1006 JPRs are, are just as relevant for that hasty type of procedure that we could do with as little as, as really a couple of carabiners, maybe some webbing and an eight mil bailout rope that, mm-hmm. that most firefighters are going to have, right. uh, whether that is using a descent control device or just throwing a munter, getting below, catching a couple angles to help you with friction to, to control their weight as you toss them down and then bring that rope up, package down, down, down. When, when we look at that, I think that if, if you were going to that awareness operations technician level, I think that kind of flow is pretty good, especially if it's taken into that civilian RTF side where an awareness level, you need everybody needs to know what that capability is, right? We're going to be throwing people out of a window. We're going to need assets down there to get them and let's get them out real quick because they're injured and, and this is an evolving situation. But, you know, at an awareness level, that may be your command staff. Where at an operations level, that, that may be your law enforcement who created that CCP is holding security. And then that technician level is is actually that rescue task force that are packaging, doing rapid treatment, rapid packaging, and rapid evac out of there. So it seems like it would fall in, in very well with a, a lot of the, the guidelines that are out there. Yeah, yeah. you know, for from a firefighter perspective, f- fire guys, you know, they, they haven't quite – totally jumped in onto the rescue task force concept. And I, and I think a lot of it is just because it hasn't been really explained to them that well, that the techniques that they're using are no different than they they've been taught for firefighter survival and firefighter rescue. It's just that instead of putting this stuff on a firefighter, they're putting it on an injured person. Uh, but you know, you, you, you really made a good point in that everybody as part of that, that rescue task force needs to have that great understanding of what's going on. I'm not a police officer, but I sure as heck want to know if I'm part of a rescue task force, what that law enforcement officer is capable of, what he's going to do in a specific situation, just like I'm sure he's going to want to know what I am going to do in a specific situation. You know, the, uh, you know, we may choose a CCP based on how easy it is to evacuate somebody out of a window. And if the law enforcement officers are already in tune with that, 
and they can be looking for those places while they're you know clearing that direct threat area out so that as we move into that indirect threat area uh you know we're kind of all on the same on the same page so you know i see some pretty good things coming up with that you know whether or not that ever becomes part of nfpa i mean who knows you know it, it is a it is a rescue discipline but it is uh you know it's such an austere condition you know who knows if if that's something that they're they're going to want to be into so you know i'm glad that the uh the committee uh for uh TECC is kind of investigating that because it's it's a much needed thing you know the, the concept of we bring people out the same way we came in it just doesn't work, man. And, and, you know, we learned that in the fire service. If you're going to go rescue somebody in a house fire, why would I drag you back through the problematic area that I just came from to get to you? You're, you know, exactly. And I, and I think that's unfortunately the way when we get two worlds that collide, I think potentially if, if we look at that from, can we meet the key parameters of what law enforcement needs to do, which would technically be provide security for that rescue task force to be able to infill rapidly treat and exfil these casualties out to yeah. a higher echelon of training, you know, being able to adapt those techniques that, that are innate or organic to fire departments is incredible because technically, you know, people are looking at, Oh, what, how much cost is that going to involve to be able to do this, this, and this as a rescue task force. To be honest with you, if you, if you looked at it and you might've discussed this quite a bit, so we look at it from almost a, a venom or search type of thing where, you know, why are we bringing our firefighters through the main entry point? If that building isn't completely secured, we, we could almost hit it from the outside where sure. that law enforcement, who's always going to be able to choose that CCP because they're the ones in there making a tactical decision. If we can train with them and say, hey, really try and get a CCP that's got a couple means of egress out there, not just because it's safer or it's faster, but but legitimately with the threat of explosives and things like this, as soon as they start going through that hallway and a couple cops pick up on the fact that, hey, you're in a CCP there. And as I was bringing this patient in, I noticed a couple bags with wires out there we're probably going to want to get out of that spot right. quickly. And I'd rather yeah. not go right next to the backpacks again. I'd rather just break that window out and go. And we saw the efficacy of, of even getting people out of a window at Virginia tech with LaVrisky, uh, forcing on, you know, having all of his students jump 19 feet out of that window. It was incredible. Uh, every single one that got away, you know, made it. Unfortunately, there was one that didn't make it out, but that's, that's a great, great deal is bringing a vertical capability into that rescue task force. And it's organic to fire departments already. You know, that's, that's how we're doing, right. That's how we're doing bailouts. And I think that, that when we look at that, it would, it fits within 1006 great because we don't have to dictate equipment. We don't have to dictate techniques. We have to dictate critical performance parameters that people need to know. And it's easy to keep up with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Last one, man. I got to bring this up and this. We're going to turn serious for a second. One word, your thoughts about Missy Elliott. Um, I find her obviously being the queen of, of hip hop. Oh, yeah. Undoubtedly, I would just say she's the queen of hip hop. She's on yeah. the Super Bowl this last time. Oh, yeah. What do you feel as though her relevance to operational rescue is? I know that I've often said that most everything we've ever learned about operational rescue is as a result of Missy Elliott. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, first of all, it's, you know, can you work it? Right. Is it worth right. it? So, is it so worth it? Is it worth it? And can yeah. you work it? Um, and then with a lot of things, we have to throw it down, flip it, and reverse it. Like a mutter hitch. Uh, it's like a mutter hitch, right. you know, or I'm standing in front of something and I'm tying a bowling now around that object, right. you know, um, or then, then, you know, there's, I'm not sure where Miriam Flip Pam yet comes in, but uh, it, it fits in there somewhere. It does. But, uh, and it's almost yeah. like NFPA. You can kind of make that a little bit of whatever you need it to be based on your authority having jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, my my ultimate favorite, though, is just to get your freak on. So um, Yeah, I think that's uh, it's relevant, man. All right, Jeff, listen, <laughs> I appreciate it, bro. And uh, 
I appreciate your time and appreciate what you do with NFPA. All right, man. Good talking to you. Take it easy.